So often I tell people I am a preacher's kid, a preacher's niece, the granddaughter of Presbyterian elders, and clergy. I'm clearly clergy myself, right? I've been ordained 22 years. And there was never a time in my life that I did not know that I, too, am a valuable child of God. Truly beloved. I'm so thankful for the saints that went before the family that I know, telling them the story of God's love, that one day I could hear this story myself and know deep inside that I'm a beloved child of God and part of this community. Now, as a preacher's kid, there are a lot of memories that go with growing up in the church. I bet you can only imagine. Good and some not so great, but overall really good, right? But I have one memory that stands out above all others. Now, we're in the midst of Lent, and I'll have to say Easter was pretty fantastic with the Hallelujah course every year. But the memory that is burned in my mind is that of Christmas Eve services come and gone. Central to those events was the moment that the light of the world entered our dark and quieted sanctuary. My dad would have just finished his sermon and he clicked his pulpit light as a cue to the ushers to turn off the lights across the sanctuary. And in the back, we had a center aisle too. The back left corner, you would see one of our young people emerge from the parlor with a soul candle. This was usually one of our confirmands and they were representing Christ breaking into the world. The only voice was that of my dad also known as the, or of the preacher, also known as my dad, who was reciting the beginning of the first chapter of John. And I can hear my dad's big, booming voice now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Oh, they had the timing just right. As my dad finished that recitation, the light of the world was at the front of the chancel and had processed in with ushers following behind. And that young person would hold up his or her candle to my dad, lighting his, and then would proceed up our chancel steps because we had a choir loft back here. And my dad would take his lit candle, boldly hold it out to the first ushers in those two rows, and proclaim, Christ is born, pass it on. From there, you heard murmurs of Christ is born, pass it on, as the ushers extended light one to another and then dispersed throughout our sanctuary to their predetermined spots, right? And they began lighting the candle of the first person in each pew. You heard that over and over again, Christ is born, pass it on. 
in that moment, as light was distributed from one person to another throughout the congregation, we went from pitch black nothingness to a vibrant light that gave warmth and sparkled. Each of us was able to see that having received the light from another, we too carry the light of Christ. But more importantly, we have the responsibility to share it. The question for us today is how is it that we can ensure the light continues to spread throughout our neighborhoods and throughout the world for generations to come? I love this passage because it frames for us who Jesus the Christ was. The word was in the beginning. Christ was always part of the Godhead. And God's rich legacy of love is not one just seen in Christian scripture, but through all scripture, Hebrew and Christian. Another favorite passage of mine is this one from Jeremiah. Now, um, my dad uh, died recently, and his mentor, who um, made such an impact on him, made an impact on hundreds and hundreds of ministers from the 1950s through the 80s. And most famous mentee of his was Mr. Rogers. You all know Mr. Rogers, right? <laughs> Mr. Rogers. I need headlight. Mr. Rogers' theology was um, Dr. Orr through and through. And Dr. Orr loved to call this passage the one about divine amnesia. We have a God who forgives our sins no more. And throughout Hebrew scripture, we see God's legacy of love, God creating the world, creating humanity, claiming us, and never giving up on us. God always seeks on humanity being in relationship with God's self. When there is brokenness, when humanity turns away, God never gives up. God calls us back again and again and again, uttering those words, I will remember your sins no more. Now, there's a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary today. Don't worry, I don't always quote Pittsburgh people or even guys all the time. Just happens it works for this sermon, right? But a fellow who's there today who's from the Netherlands originally, his name is Edwin Van Driel. Now, my dad told me, he's been telling me for 25 years, Ellie, do not throw big words at sessions, and certainly don't do it to the congregation. Now, you may say to Pastor Nate, please do not invite Ellie back to preach again, right? Um, but I hope it will give you something to talk about at lunch. I want you to repeat after me. The big term is supralapsarian theology. Will you say it with me? Supralapsarian theology. I don't expect you to remember it. But what supralapsarian theology is a fancy way of saying that Jesus the Christ was not God's last-ditch effort to save the world from the problem of sin. Jesus didn't just come into the world as a Hail Mary because it was messed up. But Jesus was in the beginning. And God's intention was to become fully human at some point so that humanity would fully know and understand 
this God who desires a relationship with us. And God's legacy of love is so rich. Our call is to tell the story. Now, I like to share with folks that one of my favorite hymns from childhood is I love to tell the story. Do you know it? Yes. Yeah? If you do, sing it with me now. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So my work with the Presbyterian Foundation is to better equip congregations and individuals in telling their story of how God is moving in and through the world as God seeks to restore us and build us as the beloved community, all humanity as the beloved community. It is telling the story so generations alive know it, but also so future generations, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren and nieces and nephews and great-nieces and nephews of the kiddos who were here earlier will hear the story and know that these promises are for them too. We have a God who never gives up on us, a God who calls us back again and again, a God who calls us into relationship with God's self and one another. God's legacy and love transform us. So again, my work is simply in helping congregations to simply tell that story well, sharing what your mission and ministry is all about, encouraging all of you to use your time, talent, and resources, each at a personally meaningful level, not because the church needs them, but when we do, when we engage our time, talent, and resources, each at a personally meaningful level, we are changed. We are transformed. We grow in relationship with one another, and most importantly, in relationship with our triune God. We think about the story we have to tell. As a community of faith, as individuals the part that are part of it, how are you sharing your time, talent, and resources, each at a personally meaningful level? You know, when we show up on Sunday morning, it's not to mark check marks on the board to get points into heaven. It doesn't work that way. We cannot earn God's grace and love. It is freely given to all of humanity. But we show up to give praise to God so we can utter those promises to one another. 
We show up to reorient our lives, to hear messages of hope, to know that we are not alone even on hard days. In difficult periods, we have a God who journeys with us and a community of faith that journeys with us as well. Sometimes we show up and we are broken and hurting. We may be living in the dark night of the soul. Life can be hard. We show up to hear those promises uttered by others when we do not have the capacity to believe ourselves. We show up, whether in person or virtually, currently real time, maybe later in the week, to be the ones uttering it because it may be our neighbor next to us or the person hearing it online that really needs to hear it in the moment. We're here to utter those promises they need to hear, promises they've heard time and again, but really need to know now. When we show up in person, okay, I didn't look ahead of time. Where's your baptismal font, friends? Oh, that, it's hiding. You can't see it from the pulpit, friends, so forgive me. I should have spied it earlier. So when you show up, it's easier for you to see. You see that baptismal font, right? And you are reminded that Jesus names and claims you before you could ever name or your parents could ever name and claim God. And you see the communion table and you are reminded that Christ is present and is the unseen host and gathers us in, calls us together to celebrate in communion with one another. God calls us together in community. And so we dedicate our time, talent, and resource, again, not to give points into heaven, but to share the story to make a difference. The truth is, when we engage our time, talent, and resources at a personally meaningful level, we are transformed, as I said. We grow deeper in relationship with one another and God. Now, personally meaningful doesn't mean they're all even, right? I keep propping up my hand, and you're probably thinking, what is she doing with that hand? So time, talent, and resources. It's like a three-legged stool, isn't it? You see all my fingers are different lengths, right? So it's kind of a cattywampus stool. And there are different times in our life that we might have more talent and time than we have resources. I should go talent and time than we have resources. And other times we have more resources than talent or time. Life ebbs and flows, right? But I urge you to weekly and annually when you really plan to think about how you use all your gifts at a personally meaningful level. Now, if you take the leg of the soul over away, it falls over, right? The key is dedicating ourselves all three at a personally meaningful level. And for each one of us, the questions that help us discern what that is may be a little different, but I challenge you to always be engaging all three and figure out what you have the capacity for 
to do that at a personally meaningful level in the year ahead. As we do this, this is where we experience a fuller sense of being. We experience a greater connection with our community of faith. And when we are generous with our time, talent, and resource, we don't regret it. It does give us joy. But it's not transactional. It doesn't matter if you do it to get blessings from God. God's blessings come to us, but we give out a response to what God has already done. Think about how you're going to dedicate your gifts of time, talent, and resources moving forward. If you're not engaging all three right now, figure out how you might add that third or maybe that second and third form in. Commit your gifts because you have been shaped by God, because the Holy Spirit has moved in and through you. And you want others to experience it too. Consider how you use your time, talent, and resources, not just today though, but for generations to come. Think about what you could be doing after your lifetime, how you might leave a testament of faith that continues to influence and share the good news for future generations. When the pandemic began, it woke up many of us to having our fairs in order. And I was so pleased to hear of this four-week seminar of ashes to ashes. I think your church is doing some really nifty things. Now, when we started thinking about three years ago, oh golly, do we have these documents in place? For some of us, it meant updating our directives, while others, they were still thinking about it and may still be thinking about it, knowing they need to get it done. This includes updating our wills or trusts, our living wills, our health care directives, our beneficiary forms for retirement plans, investments, life insurance. For those of us with minor children, I am old, I'm 48, but I have an eight and a five-year-old. It meant reviewing for me or for other parents, it may be creating directives for guardianship. Hopefully, Ashes to Ashes has gotten you thinking about it again recently. As you worked on or will work on these documents, have you thought about your faith legacy? of sharing stories of what being part of the church has meant to you and including Red Clay Creek Presbyterian Church as a beneficiary to be engaged in meaningful ministry after your lifetime. You know, leaving a legacy gift is not just for the wealthy or those without heirs. Some of us may be considering endowing our pledge. That would be a gift 20 times our annual contributions. Others may simply consider tithing their estate, or even tithing just their retirement savings plan, 10%, right? Now, we talk about tithing, we see it through scripture, but you know what? The average Presbyterian gives 1.9%. So for many of us, this could be the very first time in our lives that we tithe by tithing after our lifetime. 
You know, if we die with a million dollars to our name, that would be a $100,000 gift. I bet the church would appreciate that for mission and ministry. If we die 200, with 250000 to our name, that's a $25,000 gift. Now, if the nursing home has taken all but your last $100, guess what? That $10 gift is extremely significant. Because all those gifts taken collectively bear witness to Christ's love and can make a huge impact for future generations, just as we have been impacted by those generations before us. Remarkable things can happen in mission and ministry. It is about each of us claiming the opportunity to be doing something even after our time on this earth for the sake of Jesus Christ who has transformed your life. Have you ever thought about it? I have to admit to you, friends, I told you I'm a preacher's kid, right? Preacher's niece, granddaughter of Presbyterian elders. I was ordained 14 years before I ever occurred to me, or nearly 14 years, right? Now, I filled out my first beneficiary forms at 25. I wasn't married, so who was I going to leave my pension from the board to? Oh, my three siblings. But you can't give a fraction of a percent. So you know what I did? I gave Jenny 34%, Harry and Shana 33%. Now, I had life insurance for the Board of Pensions, too. And it didn't seem fair that Jenny, the eldest, always got the most. So I gave her 33%. Harry got 34%. And Shana got 33%. Shana, the caboose in our family, got the short end of the stick both times, right? It never occurred to me that I could give 33% to each of my siblings and 10% to the Presbytery of Lake Erie that had nurtured me and who I just happened to be a member of 22 years later. And it didn't occur to me that with the life insurance, I could do the same and give 10% to the theological education fund that meant so much to me. Fast forward two years later, I'm living in Pittsburgh, serving at Pittsburgh Seminary, and I used to race sailboats on Lake Erie. So I had gone up to Erie for the day, and I ended up with a really bad migraine that looked like I was having a stroke terrible aura, and I was hospitalized. They weren't sure if it was a stroke or not. Now, my dad was a great pastor. He was uh, a pretty good preacher, great teacher, but he nailed pastoral care until it was his own family, right? I was still single. I had no ability to speak. Words were not coming to me. And my dad kept telling me, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. <laughs> I hope not, Dad. But the first thing I did when I got out of that hospital was call a friend who was a lawyer because I did not have a will or medical power of attorney. And I learned in the hospital I did not want my dad, who was a great pastor and very calm with other people, to make decisions for me. He just did not have the capacity. So I created my will and my medical power of attorney and my health care directive and all those things that go with it. But guess what? This preacher's kid, preacher's niece, granddaughter of Presbyterian elders never thought about including the church. Fast forward, I'm serving First Presbyterian Church in Warren, Pennsylvania. Do you know that the St. Louis Arch was manufactured in Pennsylvania? I had no idea until I moved there. 
but it used to be a center of great industry. You know, oil was first discovered in Titusville, PA, 40 miles as the crow flies. We had our own fuel refinery. Um, we had lots of timbering on the edge of the Allegheny National Forest. This was a hopping town 100 years ago and even 50 years ago. But it's the Rust Belt. The jobs have left. Everything is shrinking. And when I served there, I left nine and a half years ago to come to the foundation, but when I served there, they weren't talking plan giving because they figured all the rich people were gone. And they had a nice endowment of a couple million dollars, but they weren't talking plan giving. And I went to this workshop and I cornered Cliff Christopher and said, how do you talk about this in a Rust Belt town? And that's where he gave me the idea of tithing the state. He said, Ellie, how many people have you buried since January 1? It was only March, and I had buried 10 people that year. He said, say the average house was worth $100,000, and that's the only asset your folks have, but they each tithe their estate because you started talking about this two and a half years ago. What would you do with $100,000 for mission and ministry? But you know what? This preacher's kid, preacher's niece, granddaughter, Presbyterian elders, clergy person myself, Still didn't apply this to myself. In less than a year, I was in a new call serving the foundation. I was pregnant, expecting my first child. Though I had created my own will years before, my husband and I had not done this. So we went to the lawyer in Pittsburgh, and we crafted a will together. And let me tell you, we talked about the details in advance. Who would have guardianship of this child if something happened to us, primary secondary, tertiary, where our assets would go to provide for this child, or if we were all wiped out in a plane crash or a car crash, what would happen? But I never thought about broaching the idea of a faith legacy with my husband, and I was already working for the foundation for three months. And as we sat in the office, all of a sudden, a light bulb went off. I have to say it was the Holy Spirit. And I said, Eric, what do you think if we name the Presbyterian Foundation for 5% of our assets after our bills are paid to support First Presbyterian Church of Warren? Now, I do not advise you that you say to your partner at the last minute the suggestion. I think it needs good conversation and prayerful discernment, right? Eric and I could have been signing very different papers because I threw it at him. But I was lucky. In that moment, his response was very well. Then I want 5% of our state to go to First Christian Church in Cedar Falls, Iowa for the Silver Linings Fund. You see, Eric's dad had died nine years before. He was the 11th of 17 children. He knew poverty. Who has six more kids after 11, right, friends? He knew poverty. And when he was alive, Ralph was the guy that everyone knew as the candy man. You know, all the kids would go to Mr. Kelly because he had candy, hard candy, and he had chewing gum and the silver wrappers. But after he died, Eric and his mom set up this little fund called the Silver Lining Funds that they give to the church so that it's a discretionary fund for the minister so that anytime there's a child in need, whether they need boots or a coat or pajamas and underpants, whatever it might be, that the church could meet that need. 
in that moment, Eric knew precisely what we would do. Now, people would say to us, Ellie, why are you giving money away to the church when you have little kids? He's 55, I'm 48 now, we have an eight and a four-year-old. We are old, right? Friends, we have life insurance, other things to take care of our kids. But this small testament is a story for our children to know what is really important, how our lives have been transformed by the love of God. I want you to consider what your legacy might be. Knowing that a preacher didn't get it, I don't expect everyone in the pew to get it. So that's why I told you a long story, and you're like, when's this sermon going to be over, right? But consider this. The sanctuary is only partly lit. Are you going to hold that candle to yourself? Or will you stretch out your arm boldly and proclaim, Christ is born, pass it on. Amen.